thank you both gentlemen for being here. Uh, again, I'm Jim McCarthy with American Vapor Manufacturers, and I'll start with uh, an apology for our fearless leader, Amanda Wheeler, who, alas, um, is uh, um, uh, not feeling well today and had to, uh, had to take a rain check. So I'll be hosting in her stead, um, but I'm really delighted to do so because uh, we have two uh, extraordinary guests today. Um, joining us are Jacob Sullum, who's a senior editor at Reason Magazine, uh, syndicated columnist and the author of numerous books on drug and tobacco policy. Um, really one of the smartest thinkers on these topics uh, in the public discourse. And we also have Colin Mendelson, um, all the way from Sydney, Australia. And Colin is uh, the founding chair of the Australian Tobacco Harm Reduction Association and the author of a really uh, outstanding new book uh, called Stop Smoking, Start Vaping, which we will be uh, touching on in depth. So uh, thanks to both you gentlemen uh, for joining us. Thank you very much, Jim. Pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm sort of out, out, outmatched in intellect, penmanship, and uh, authority uh, today. So I'm going to try to, you know, lob the ball over the net and 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 let you guys chatter chatter more than I do. But um, it's a real treat to have you both. I I guess the uh, Jacob, we, I thought perhaps we'd start with you because um, you have a great piece that's just out in Reason Magazine. Uh, about a new study on something that, you know, I think has been pretty apparent to, to everyone we know in our spaces, which is that, you know, vaping manifestly helps smokers quit. So can you walk us a little bit through the piece you wrote and, and, and the study and especially how you think the results can help inform vaping advocacy? Sure. Uh, this is a, a study that was published uh, by Gamma Open Network recently. Um, and it's based on survey data from the PATH study, which tracks people over time and does different uh, waves of survey of the survey uh, with the same same sample. Um, and they the researchers focused in particular on about 1,600 uh, smokers who were uh, daily smokers at the beginning of the study. Uh, none of them were interested in quitting. And uh, at that point, none of them were vaping at all. And then they looked to see what happened over the next uh, five years or so that the study covered. Um, and they found that among these smokers, none of whom initially attended to quit, the ones who started vaping uh, every day on a daily basis were much more likely to, to have quit smoking by the end of the study. So it's pretty striking because once they did uh, their adjusted analysis and they adjusted for, for potential confounding variables, uh, the smokers who started vaping every day were eight times as likely as the smokers who did not, uh, did not vape at all uh, to quit smoking by the end of the study. Um, so that's a, that's a pretty big apparent effect. Now you can't say for sure it's an effect because it's not a randomized trial, but it is very striking that, that you have this uh, strong association um, they, you know, did adjust, uh, like I meant, as I mentioned, for, for about half a dozen variables, things like uh, sex and age and how much people smoked and that sort of thing. Um, and it, this is consistent with what we know from uh, randomized trials, except the unusual thing about this study is that instead of starting with people who are interested in quitting, which is what they typically do with a clinical trial, you know, they'll assign some people to use uh, uh, 
one quit method, other people use a different quit method, see which, which is more effective. Um, though they're starting with people who already are interested in quitting. In this case, none of these people were interested in quitting to begin with. Um, so that, you know, the fact that they were eight times likely to quit anyway, uh, if, they, if they were vaping every day is very striking. Um, and what it suggests, you know, you can speculate about exactly what, what, what goes on there. People may have started vaping as a way to get around, uh, you know, bans on smoking in some places, places they weren't allowed to smoke. Um, and so they're, so they're smoking and vaping simultaneously, you know, at the, at the same time, um, but in different, different settings, and then gradually find that this is a, a good substitute for them, and obviously, you know, a much less dangerous one. Um, and so it might come about in that way. So when you see people worried about all of the people who are smoking and vaping, right, you often hear this concern that, oh, they're not really quitting, they're doing both. Uh, and somehow that's even worse. But in fact, they may be on a pathway to ultimately quitting smoking altogether. Right. Well, I mean, it, it really it, it struck me because it resonated with my own experience. I, I'm, I'm, I guess what might be called an accidental quitter. And I was a dual user for a time. And then, you know, suddenly the penny dropped and I realized, hey, I prefer the vaping. Um, but Colin, it makes me I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that, because. This is a phenomenon that is seen, you know, in so many different places, anecdotally, empirically, you know, when people take a closer look at it, you know, in, in, in studies of this sort, it becomes apparent. I mean, you'd think that would be rich ground for more research. And yet instead, you know, you see studies like the ones that were popping around the same time in the last two weeks about, you know, the, the relationship, supposed relationship between vaping, vaping and erectile dysfunction. I mean. <laughs> What what, yeah. what 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 did you what what did you make of that study, Colin? And I guess my bigger question is why is that kind of thing not getting more research and you know public attention? Yeah, look, it was a big effect, um, only for daily users. Uh, and vaping is the only quitting aid that works this way. Um, of course, it, 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 you know you never see people just trying putting on a patch who aren't interested in quitting. So it's it's really a valuable um, addition to what we've got. Look, it was only an association, but it adds to all the other evidence we've got. I mean, we have got good evidence from randomised controlled trials, observational studies, population studies. And I think the important thing is to add all that evidence together in what's called triangulation, where you consider a range of different types of, of evidence for the effectiveness of vaping. Um, so that you get the you know you allow for the pros and and, uh, and the disadvantages of each type of method, and when you put it all together, it, it really does increase our confidence that vaping is an effective quitting method, which which we already knew. And we, I mean, I see that all the time in, in my own practice. I see see people who, in fact, in my book, I've got two cases out of fifteen who were accidental quitters. So I, I think it just adds to the evidence. It gives us more confidence. And uh, I think it's, it's a very valuable aspect of vaping. It, you know, it's hard not to think, though, that a lot of the, you know, clinical research that's being done on these sorts of effects and, and, and you know, vaping writ large isn't, you know, mostly or nearly all geared toward finding, I don't know, theoretical harms or downsides. Mm. I mean, that may be a result of the funding mechanisms. I mean, I hate to get too conspiratorial about it, but it does seem pretty striking that you see all these pop-up studies with these obscure theoretical mm. harms all the time. And yet, and, and, and yet these ones like, like the one that Jacob's covered here, which have a far more salient, broader 
you know, positive impact either get short shrift or only happen, you know, by happenstance. Do you do you both notice that or am I overstating the case? Oh, I think that's very clear, and there's good good research now that, to show that the media tends to cover negative reports, and uh, they they are not particularly interested in the positive effects of vaping and the huge potential public health benefits of vaping. And that is the bias of the media; they're very hostile to to vaping, certainly in Australia. But you know, they're looking for negative and alarmist stories that will get them the clicks and will will get the the coverage, and that will support their funders and yeah i don't think it's unreasonable to be conspiratorial i'm not at all normally conspiratorial but clearly there's an agenda of the uh, well you know the, the media funny. i mean it's funny you say that we we had a little we had a little you know uh, i don't know focus on the coverage of vaping at um uh abc excuse me uh cbs news their their program yeah. their morning program did, did a big piece you guys i'm sure both saw and, you know, we were, were contesting the way that they're covering that for the exact reasons you're talking about. But what really troubled me about it is that the, that the reporter, Tony Dokopil, their morning anchor, if you look at his Twitter feed and the way he thinks about, you know, drug policy issues with which he has a lot of experience and knowledge, he understands full well the positives that, that can help people quit. Um, you know, what's at stake in, in, in the, the, you know, the prohibition policies. He knows all that and can, and can discuss it and openly says so. And yet in the, in the reporting itself, the journalism itself, there's no mention of that. He just completely avoids it, elides it, focuses on these obscure, you know, aspects that suit the purposes of the, the prohibition movement. And it just is dismaying. I mean, it'd be one thing if they were simply, I don't know, lazy or, um, you know, pushing, I, I don't know, it didn't didn't have the depth of knowledge, but 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 this guy does. I mean, Jacob. I guess my my question to you is how you view that lens of journalism. Help help us understand as a journalist why you think that's happening at the national media level when journalists who really ought to know better are nevertheless, you know, withholding these key aspects from the public conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think the stories about children in peril always attract attention and they have you know long been used as a basis for for uh, public policy as well um, not just in this area obviously but in many other areas too other areas of drug policy um, things having to do with popular culture like comic books and video games and um, the novel you know <laughs> going, going right. a little bit further back all of these things that were uh, supposed to be threats to the youth of America and people took that quite seriously and when you're a journalist that sort of story has a built-in audience um, among people who like to worry about that but you know, what, what about the children um, so if you're asking you know it, it does surprise me a bit I guess that somebody who actually has a more sophisticated understanding of the issue understands how harm reduction works, for example. If you have a reporter who understands harm reduction as a general principle of, uh, of drug policy, but does not include any mention of that in a story about vaping, that, that's a bit surprising to me. Um, and maybe it's just because it doesn't, doesn't fit in with the rest of the story. The rest of the story is about you know, these evil capitalists who are uh, preying on, on the youth of America and trying to get them hooked on this dangerous product. And so if you also mention, uh, but also this could save millions of lives, you know, that doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't really fit the frame. But 
that's of a that's of a piece, isn't it, with the way that a lot of uh, public officials look at it too. I mean, you know, you can look at places like Oregon, let's say, where they understand and promote uh, harm reduction and all sorts of other areas, including illicit drugs. And yet on vaping, they're doing all they can to prohibit it and pursue the most hardline prohibitionist policies. I mean, that that is just such a such a striking disconnect. It seems to be shared in journalism, too. And I just can't, you know, crack the code on how you snap people out of that stupor. I mean, they already accept harm reduction in so many other areas. And yet here they turn into, you know, some liquor fighting prohibitionists from the 20s. Why is that? Well, I I think there are actually a lot of people who lean left who are critics of the war on drugs and who have a consistent understanding of harm reduction and will say, yes, absolutely, vaping is part of that. But there are lots of others who resist it. And if you ask why, given that you accept this basic logic, I think um, it basically comes down to prejudice. They associate this product with you know, big tobacco or with some evil industry, um, and they have trouble getting past that. So it it was very, I mean, this has been going on for years, but I remember years ago giving a talk at, uh, I think what was at the time, the Libisness Center, later became the Drug Policy Alliance, about tobacco harm reduction. And at that point, it wasn't about vaping, it was about uh, smokeless tobacco, mainly, um, and, you know, snooze. Um, and, you know, ways that people could get nicotine uh, but while reducing the harms, the health, the health risks they were, they were facing. And, and people on the left, even if they were generally uh, pretty sophisticated about drug policy, uh, were, did not like that idea um, that, you know, different, not all, all kinds of tobacco are the same in terms of the risks they pose and that it's better to use the ones that are less risky. Um, they really had had trouble with that. And these are the same people who are saying, absolutely, we should be having a needle exchange program, you know, for people who use heroin to get equipment so they don't, uh, they're less likely to spread, uh, you know, bloodborne diseases. They they were 100% on board with that. And you would think that that would be, <laughs> you know, for the general public, that would right. be a more controversial policy, you'd think. Um, but yeah, so I had, I had trouble understanding it. And what I ultimately concluded is just a matter uh, it's not consistent. It's not rational. It is uh, based on certain cultural prejudices that people have, um, and you can, and sometimes you can persuade people. And I think over time, the drug policy reform movement has become much more receptive to tobacco harm reduction than it used to be. Right, right, right. Well, let me. Uh, uh, but before I lose sight, I want to. I want to lob a, a, a pitch over the plate for Colin about your terrific new book, "Stop Smoking, Start Vaping." Um, available at bookstores and Amazon links everywhere. Uh, we'll put a link in our in our thread for those that want to um, to get a copy. But Colin, tell us what your book is about. Look, uh, just before we do, <coughs> excuse me. I, I I just want to agree with what Jacob said. I think we've got this double standard uh, with with harm reduction, and and if you look at the history of, of harm reduction, you know, new new harm reduction strategies are resisted very vigorously uh, and, and over time they gradually become accepted and, and I think we saw that with all the other uh, forms of harm reduction that we, we accept today and I think that'll happen with tobacco harm reduction. Um, uh, you know, clearly this isn't based on, on evidence, this resistance, it's based on, it's certainly, it's based on a whole range of other factors as Jacob said and we won that war against the resistance, the one that war against drugs, we, to a large extent we've won a lot of the battles and I think we will win this one. Um, 
but yeah, the dominant narrative is still too strong, and um, uh, the support for um, those those sorts of attitudes is still unfortunately the dominant one. But let, me, they, let me press a little bit. Let me press yeah. a little bit more on it. Well, since we're on it, because I, you know, a, a thought that keeps occurring to me is that it's, you know, if we want to talk about it in terms of sort of prejudice or or perceptions, I mean, I wonder if there isn't an, almost a a kind of class dimension to it as well. I mean, you, in the United States, you might mm. call it a sort of blue state, red state divide, wherein, broadly speaking, coastal elites who are health conscious mm. and, uh, you know, public health, public health devotees sort of look down their nose at the rest of the country that indulges in nicotine or vaping and regards it as a, a kind of uh, status or class marker um, and, and, you know, and stigmatizes people who, who use nicotine and, and that, that attitude therefore justifies all of these, you know, uh, harsh policies. Is that, I mean, again, am I, am I imagining that or is that a component? Oh, no, I think that's definitely a component. I think, you know, people who oppose vaping, um, the, the public health experts, um, you know, generally have that, that sort of, um, uh, that view of, of smokers and vapors and nicotine users, and uh, they're very upset that they're not doing what they're told. But they 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 don't see smoking in their own circles. I'm sure they don't speak to many vapors. And um, I, I think I think it's a group that are uh, of less concern to them. I mean, this is a, a lower economic, socioeconomic, um, social group that that doesn't have the same value in their view. So I think this is consistent with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, let's segue there, um, Colin. I'd love to hear about your book. Yeah, thank, look, thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. Look, I've been working in tobacco treatment for 40 years as a, as a medical practitioner, helping smokers quit and involved in research and a lot of teaching and so on. But look, I've been blown away at how successful vaping nicotine is. Um, you know, it's so popular. Uh, it's considerably, it's, it's certainly effective. And it's helped so many of my patients to quit who have tried every other uh, evidence-based uh, proved strategy who weren't otherwise able to quit. So, you know, there's so much opposition and so much misinformation uh, about vaping and nicotine in spite of that. So the, what the book tries to do is, is outline the evidence in, in, a, in a readable way for, for smokers and about effectiveness and about the safety issues so they can make an informed decision. I think it's very hard for people to to make that step when there's such a constant um, negative narrative in, in the media. So the book gives them that information. And I think also for, for new vapors, it's quite overwhelming. There's a huge amount of information um, available and so the book covers the basic information of what are nicotine salts, mouth to lung vaping, coils, and it provides a step-by-step guide on how to switch, you know, how to select the right start of vape for you, how much nicotine to use, do you need nicotine, um, how to vape and how to vape safely. But I also wanted to understand why vaping is so controversial. You know, why is there so much opposition uh, to vaping when it can have such a huge public health potential. Um, and the book explores all those hidden reasons behind the opposition um, to the most popular and most effective quitting method. So, you know, the book was partly to help me to understand that, and I think the sort of 
explores a lot of those reasons that you know we are behind the sort of issues and arguments that we've been talking about. Well, I think every vapor I know, and myself included, has a, a story. If you ask them about helping others quit smoking with vaping, yeah. and yeah. I've tried to do that myself in my own sort of makeshift way. I have a little method that I use that I try to share with others. But why don't you? Can you give us some advice for our listeners and followers? What can they do individually when asked to help their friends and others? For smoking to switch is there do you have some any sort of general advice general tips yeah. that they can present yeah look i think it's striking that just about every vapor i see who's been vaping for a while has has switched helped switch uh, other smokers so they you know they're also blown away by how this has worked and they want to help other people and that, that's where most of the vape shop owners have, have uh, got into the business they really have this passion to help people people quit so I think whenever there's an opportunity, people should talk about their vaping. Uh, they should tell their doctors. They should tell any smokers and offer to help them quit. They need to share the what they've learned and and their story as whenever there's the opportunity. So in the in social media, in mainstream media, uh, corresponding and visiting their members of of Congress or the members of their local politicians. So I, I think. Well, is it okay? Is it okay? But is it okay for me to just share my own personal experience with someone else, or, or do I need to go about it in a more careful way? Is it? I mean, in other words, can am I am I uh, is is is, are, is there a preferred way to, to evangelize? I guess. Look, I think the most important thing is to tell your own story. I think personal stories cut through often where where the evidence doesn't. I mean, we've got to remember that we're being swamped by misinformation about vaping and nicotine. Um, and so for people to see that, yes, he's a real person who's found it successful, I think is, uh, is very compelling. Uh, but I think one of the reasons I, I think the book is useful and what people are telling me is that when they approach a smoker, well, often they'll say, well, but that's worse than smoking or, or you'll get popcorn lung or you'll get cancer. And the advantage of having the evidence is to be able to say, well, look, have a look at this. You know, this, is, this is the real story about popcorn lung. And, and here's the real evidence about the real harm, because I think you have to also look at the barriers for those people. They're, they're reading in the mainstream media all the misinformation and, and they're thinking, well, you know, the CDC says I shouldn't vape. Well, um, they should know what they're talking about. But, you know, the, when they understand the facts, of course, there's a much better chance that they will explore it. Well, that gives us a chance to maybe back the frame up a little bit, talk about where the demonization movement is going. Um, you know, Jacob had a uh, another uh, terrific piece in Reason just uh, in mid-late December. We'll put the link in the thread um, about how bureaucrats and politicians seem determined to cripple the industry through regulation and taxes. Jacob, can you give us a, a sense of where you see that? And maybe if I could, if I could put you on the spot for a State of the Union on whether we're, we are winning or losing. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? And, and what's the state of the state of the oppressive? regs and taxes regime? Well, I mean, I, I guess I'm fairly pessimistic at this point. There was a time when the FDA first acknowledged uh, the harm reducing potential of vaping where I was more optimistic. Um, and of course, there, that process of regulating vaping products dragged on for years. I think it's been seven years, more than seven years at this point since they first announced their intention to regulate them. And then and then basically all along, these products have been 
uh, officially illegal in the you know in the FDA's view. If it hasn't been approved, it's not legal. But but the reason that they're still on the market is that they, well, the real reason they don't they simply don't have the resources to shut everybody down. Uh, but the official reason is that they're exercising their enforcement discretion, right? So, but when they finally move toward actually accepting um, applications. Uh, for so-called pre-market approval, even though it's really post-market approval, um, I, I was somewhat optimistic, especially when they when they said that they were going to help along the, the smaller uh, companies uh, to comply with with all of the bureaucratic requirements. But it really hasn't uh, panned out. I mean, uh, the first point is that they have approved almost nothing. They've approved basically one product I know of with two with two tobacco flavored uh, cartridges uh, made by R.J. Reynolds. Um, and they seem very set against uh, any other flavors, which is really unfortunate because the vast majority of, of vapors, adult vapors, are using flavors other than tobacco. Um, and that really seems irrational to me. And if you ask why, it's, you know, they'll tell you it's because teenagers like this. You know, and if you say, well, adults also like these flavors, uh, that to them, it doesn't matter. Um, so even though ostensibly they're concerned about having this harm reducing option available and they recognize uh, what they would what they see as a public health benefit from that they won't take the further step of saying well how are people actually using this product and which kinds of products do they actually overwhelmingly prefer uh, maybe those should be we should continue to have those available they're not willing to take that step at least not yet and it, i mean it looks to me like they're just dead set against approving other flavors and that would be really disastrous because they're eliminating you know, the vast majority of the products that people are, are, are using. Um, so that's bad, but it's worse when you, when you look at uh, politicians at the local level, at the federal level, who refuse to even acknowledge that there is uh, a potential for harm reduction here, that, there is a, that this is um, an exciting innovation that could potentially prevent a lot of smoking-related uh, deaths. Uh, so, I mean, you mentioned uh, one, one congressman earlier, I believe, um, who uh, just denies that there's any any reason to think maybe yeah. help people uh, uh, quit smoking. Um, I don't yeah. think he 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 denies that uh, vaping is less hazardous. Maybe he has said that, but I haven't seen him say that. But just to say outright, there's no evidence. That's clearly not true. You can argue over the strength of the evidence, uh, how convincing it is to you, and so on, and look at the different kinds of evidence. I mean, you have surveys like we discussed earlier, and you also have these uh, randomized controlled trials, <laughs> which have different you know, pros and cons. But you can't say that there's no evidence at all. Um, and, and just in terms of the measurable output of, of you know, vaping devices versus combustible cigarettes, you know that there are far fewer, uh, you know, far, far lower levels of toxins, fewer toxins, lower levels of toxins than carcinogens, um, uh, much lower. You know. So you know that and without doing any you know, research for decades to try to figure out, you know, to measure the, the outcomes, you know that this has got to be uh, much less dangerous. So, so, but for people to deny that and to deny, no, this isn't doing anything, this isn't helping anybody quit, that's just mind boggling to me. And yet those are the people who are making policy, you know, in Congress, introducing bills in Congress and at the, at the local level, like people in San Francisco who decided it was a good idea to ban uh, flavored uh, vaping products. You know, again, because of the kids, right? And it looks like, uh, as a result of that, you know, after at least after that happened, uh, the smoking rate, uh, smoking rates in San Francisco were higher relative ju to jurisdictions that had not, um, you know, uh, adopted that policy. 
Um, so that that kind of thing, I just can't understand. Uh, same thing with the taxes, where originally uh, you know, House Democrats were going to raise taxes on everything. So they're going to raise taxes on cigarettes. They're also going to impose taxes on, on vaping products. But then they ended up with a proposal that was scaled back. So they're like, forget about the cigarettes. We'll only tax <laughs> this one product that we that is you know far less dangerous, a far less dangerous alternative to cigarettes. We'll tax that. Um, and then ultimately that was next, fortunately. That didn't make it into the final bill. But I just can't understand how anybody who claims to be trying to promote public health uh, can support policies like those because they're very clearly undermining this opportunity to reduce you know, smoking-related damage. <laughs> uh, can I jump in there too? I mean, to say that, that clearly the FDA and certain politicians have an anti-vaping agenda and, and, and it's not based on on the evidence and their policy, public health policy is not based on the evidence, uh, clearly. I mean, we, as Jacobs has said, we, th these products are clearly lower risk and, and clearly they're helping people to quit. Um, and we know that the benefits far outweigh the risks. And this whole youth vaping thing, I mean, it's just absurd. The evidence is growing that youth vaping is diverting young people from smoking and reducing smoking rates with very little harm. And, and they've created this huge moral panic around this because kids are vaping uh, and mostly, we, you know, there's this concern about the, uh, the soccer mums and their kids. Um, and and the FDA, FDA is prioritising a very small and theoretical risk to young people over a, a benefit to young people, uh, which I think is, is, is now what we're seeing, and also a massive benefit to the adult population. And, and in... Well in and sorry, in regard to political risk, the politicians, I think there is political risk as well. It's probably there are more votes in being tough on vaping and fighting the tobacco companies than there are in, in um, going against the, the dominant agenda, which, uh, which, which would lead to some, um, you know, would take a lot of courage and, and lead to potential conflict. Well, you know, it makes me, it makes me wonder, you know, I, I, and when we were pushing back on CBS's coverage, you know, I looked back and rewatched re the, the, the great film they did in the 90s about CBS's journalism on tobacco in that era. Um, you'll recall that film was called The Insider, starring mm -hmm. Al Pacino and Russell Crowe. And, you know, it, look at looking at that film in retrospect all these years later, you know, a lot of the thrust of what CBS was doing and the position that it was taking and the, the framing of tobacco at the time today you know, it makes perfect sense and seems obvious. And, you know, it's easy to forget that at the time that was hugely contentious. I mean, I'm going to fish for a little optimism here, Colin, but, you know, will there come a day low years from now when we look at the, the, the current vaping wars and think these members of Congress were absolutely out of their minds? Absolutely. Look, I'm, I think history has shown us that in the battle for various forms of harm reduction, we had this hostile resistance in the early stages um, and for a whole variety of reasons, which, which, which apply to smoking as well and vaping, you know, things like the financial issues and the ideological issues and, and vested interests and political risk and so on. And we find that over, the, over time, great attitudes do change. The evidence becomes clearer and clearer and it's harder to resist. And I'm sure that will happen with vaping. Uh, and it's true with all innovations as well. I mean, these new... Um, uh, disruptive innovations almost always win. I mean, we don't, we're not going back to, to 
film uh, for for photos, we're, we're using digital cameras, and you know that's what happened to Kodak. That they they suffered from that that um, archaic view and not being unwilling to accept the new technology. So whenever you have new technology and whenever you have harm, effective harm reduction strategies, they do succeed over time, but it will be a, a fight. Well, you know, the, the, the money that we're up against is just so gargantuan mm. and, you know, the vested interest. And, you know, I, I think there's also a, um, you know, a kind of public choice theory at work, given all the money that the government reaps from tobacco sales. I mean, mm. that can't can't be understated mm. in my view. But, you know, help me understand, uh, Colin and Jacob, too, that when FDA decided to green light the marketing of two new kinds of combustible cigarettes, just before Christmas time, that you know, we saw no, no word mention, complaint whatsoever from all of the main groups that were up against Center for Tobacco Free Kids, Truth Initiative. All none of those groups had a single peep to say about that, and I, I was just flabbergasted. You'd think that groups whose entire mission is about fighting combustible tobacco products mm-hmm. would have been hot under the collar about that, and yet they were just putting up you know, Christmas photos of their pets. They, they didn't care. And I, I, I'm baffled at that. I think that part of the explanation for that is that these products, these are reduced nicotine uh, cigarettes, right? And so that sort of fits with the agenda of the anti-smoking movement, which favors, uh, you know, uh, requiring reductions in nicotine content. My immediate question, whenever I see something like that, is they anticipate this will mean less addiction and therefore less smoking. But if people are already addicted to nicotine, it seems like it could also lead to more smoking if you reduce the amount of nicotine. So I'm not sure how well that's going to, those products are going to work out as you know harm reduction strategies. But it is very striking that the FDA takes that seriously as uh, potentially beneficial, but you know flavored vaping. Uh, products are beyond the pale somehow. And I also, I, I want to mention, and Colin pointed out that if you look at who among the teenagers is vaping, the vast majority of them are either uh, current smokers or former smokers. Um, and you add to that the fact that the downward trend in the U.S. Uh, in adolescent smoking accelerated as these products became available and became more popular. Uh, which suggests that you're, you're seeing less of a gateway from vaping to smoking and more of a gateway in the other direction. Or it may be somebody who never smoked, but otherwise would have, right? So you have a teenager who maybe never smokes, but he vapes instead. That's an improvement, you know, from a public health point of view. And certainly all any teenage smoker who, who switches to vaping instead, that's also an improvement. I asked uh, Scott Gottlieb, um, the former head of the FDA, about about why don't you consider that uh, when you're you're making these decisions? And he said, in his view, the FDA is not allowed to consider that. In other words, they their priority is to completely eliminate underage vaping, and they can't even allow for the possibility that uh, uh, teenagers vaping rather than smoking is a good thing. But that's an improvement on balance. And so, how would they? So, how would they? If the standard doesn't allow you to consider that reality, so how would how would you estimate then, Jacob, that that FDA would regard the new bill that uh, Congressman Krishnamurthy put forward to to give FDA authority to regulate synthetic nicotine? In Gottlieb's view, or in the view you're describing from FDA, would they welcome that because it's giving them marching orders that they can point to as justification? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think. 
from their point of view, these are all the same. I mean, their legal the legal fiction for regulating uh, vaping products as tobacco products is that the nicotine is derived from tobacco. So if it's not derived from, t- from tobacco, that's an obvious legal problem for them. But they would argue, I, I assume, this is essentially the same no matter where the nicotine comes from, and that's pretty much true. So, um, yeah, so I think that they would want to uh, – I'm not, I'm not sure if the, the standard for, for regulation would change other than just expanding the product that they regulate. But the, the current standard is problematic, too. And that's that's not just the FDA's fault. That's Congress's fault. Um, you know, when they and they passed uh, the Tobacco Control Act, and of course, they didn't weren't thinking of vaping at the time. But the standard that they used for approving uh, new products was a sort of collectivist calculus. It looked at the whole population, weighs costs and benefits across the whole population. It doesn't just ask, is this product an improvement in the sense that it delivers nicotine and it's much less risky? You'd think that that would be enough. Is this a product that people want to use because they you think it will help them quit smoking? It's not enough to say that. Um, they have to say, well, granted that, that a bunch of smokers uh, may quit by, by vaping instead, what about the children? You know, will, yeah. you know, rates of underage use increase and how do we you know, weigh that versus the benefit for adults? And as I mentioned, they're not considering the benefits for teenagers who would otherwise be smokers. Uh, they're not considering that at all. So it's really an impossible calculation to do in any kind of rigorous way. But even if you take that project seriously, it's hard to imagine how they can possibly come up with enough countervailing costs to outweigh the benefits of having these products available. And then, Colin, help me help, help us understand the, the broader impact that the, that kind of, uh, you know, misguided thinking from FDA affects regulatory policy in other countries. I mean, it's true. It's, it's true. Is it not that places like Australia and many other countries in the world follow FDA's lead? Is that do you see that effect to, and to what extent? Well, look, I think people in Australia who are opposed to vaping look to the U.S., um, <clears throat> those of us who support vaping look to other countries where clearly it's working. So people are very selective in the evidence that they uh, point to. So, but the, the FDA's lead is, is certainly very influential globally. And look, I think they're not even meeting their own criteria for approving these products. The, the approval process for the PMTAs is that these products are beneficial overall for public health. And I think for youth they actually are, and, and certainly for adults they are. And, and all the modelling shows that. So, you know, you can't justify this based on the evidence that we have so far. And, and I'm, sure they'll, well, I'm sure they'll eliminate the synthetic vaping uh, nicotine as well. I'm sure they'll include that. They'll just change the laws and include that because that's their agenda is, that, is, that, that is to oppose nicotine on this anti-nicotine uh, campaign. Well, you know, I hang a lot of hope on the various lawsuits against FDA that are wending through the federal courts in a number of different circuits right now. And, you know, I'm sort of perversely heartened by the way that that the you know federal government and, and FDA have in their briefs seemingly thumbed their nose at, you know, the the circuit courts and even at the Supreme Court in their briefs, arguing that, you know, it doesn't really matter what you guys decide because, you know, we're still going to regard it as unlawful and, you know, you know, mm-hmm. waving off the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, I mean, it looks to me like they're really you know waving a red cape in front of the federal bench and my my earnest hope is that the courts will you know straighten them out on a lot of this 
uh, you know, makeshift misguided blinkered thinking. But again, I, maybe I'm over my skis on that. Jacob, is there, is there reason to hope there or am I, am I just, uh, wishing on the star? Um, I have not examined that litigation closely enough to say, you know, how good its chances are, but I, it seems to me a very compelling argument that the entire basis for uh, regulating these products, uh, you know, under a tobacco control act was to say this, that the, the nicotine is derived from tobacco. So if it's not derived from tobacco, I just don't see what other legal rationale there can be to say this is covered by the statute. Um, so yeah, I'm very interested to see what, what happens in the courts. Yeah. Yeah. So, can I just jump in there? Because there have been Please. some very successful, uh, legal challenges to, um, government regulation. So like in New Zealand, um, the ministry of health was opposed to vaping at one point and, uh, Philip Morris took them to court and the court said, well, well, obviously these products are going to improve public health. Um, uh, opposing them is, uh, contradictory to your own um, values and priorities. So we're overriding you. And, and this also happened in Quebec um, and in Switzerland, there was a legal case where the government's uh, position was overturned. So I think it's definitely a case, an opportunity for legal cases, because when you look objectively at the evidence, so I don't think there's any doubt that these products will improve public health. And, and sometimes the government overreaches uh, in its... Um, uh, um, decision making and and the courts I think do have a role to play in saying well well hang on that's not right you can't just because you have this ideology you can't interpret the evidence that way uh, whereas the court can be more objective right right well we're going to follow those cases closely as we have so far and um, uh, you can follow those on our on our uh, AVM Twitter feed but uh, let me switch gears a little bit to our segment on media coverage of the week. Um, there was a, a, a piece that uh, popped a f few days back on the Johns Hopkins Medical School website, um, uh, arguing that uh, vaping is, quote, still not safe, close quote, in their view, and cited the Evali outbreak as its main example. Um, you know, I've been I had a nice chat earlier this week with Michael Pesco, who's done some of the most important academic work on Evali and has um, authored a letter uh, to the federal agencies urging them to change the name because it's so you know plainly misleading and 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 distorts what actually occurred there. Um, but I guess my question for you gentlemen is, you know, what wh what can be done to confront you know glaringly wrong information from you know highly respected sources like Johns Hopkins Medical School. I mean it's not like I'm you know, not like we're, we're going after a, you know, a New York tabloid for, you know, writing an article in Crayola Crayon. I mean, this is a prestigious medical institution that's saying something just, you know, manifestly erroneous and causing active harm to the people that read it. So I don't know your thoughts on how that kind of thing can be challenged. Well, I, I yeah. looked at that, that fact sheet and it's it, the thing that struck me about it is they do eventually say oh, this problem, these injuries were actually uh, a result, I think they either said largely or mostly a result of black market THC vapes that have this additive that, that uh, is linked to these injuries. Um, so, so that's the weirdest thing about it. It wasn't just, just that they 
uh, used uh, these injuries as a reason, you know, to be sus suspicious of nicotine vaping, even though it's actually irrelevant. Um, it was that he introduced that as an argument against nicotine vaping, and then supplied the additional information that showed you, in fact, that, that that's wrong. Um, so that was quite odd to me, because it wasn't like they were ignorant of those facts. Um, and, you know, it's the same issue you mentioned in the very name of the condition um, refers to e-cigarettes, which is totally misleading. That's the CDC's fault. They made up that name. They, for months, were misleading people into thinking that these injuries were caused by legal nicotine vaping products. And it, it simply wasn't true in the ending. Might be having a glitch there, Jacob. Uh, Colin, can you still hear us? Yeah, I get to hear you. Yes, Look, I, I, I agree with what Jump Jacob's in. saying. Yeah, um, um, I think Ivali is used as a, a way of undermining vaping. I mean, clearly, uh, it's not related to regular nicotine vaping. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I think you have to call out this misinformation wherever you can. And, and what we try and do over here is um, whenever we see clearly misinformed um, um, information um, from certainly from authority figures, we 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 challenge it where we can. So we it's very hard to get those sorts of counter arguments into the mainstream media, but we we do blogs and social media and try and use other channels to challenge that that misinformation um, because I think you have to win community support and educate the public, and, and I think we'll only win this campaign if we get the public on side because I think at the end of the day this is all political, and if more people understand the facts and and have aware are aware what's happening in, in the agenda that's being pushed uh, I, I think we'll we'll we will we'll eventually win but I, I wonder about something you said earlier Colin on the on the kind of the political grassroots uh, you know constituencies for this that you know the idea that anti-nicotine is a is a politically winning message. I mean, mm. couldn't couldn't you argue there are let's say ten million plus American vapors and their families and friends who can see firsthand the positive upsides here? You even got some, you know, political races that appear to have been impacted. Uh, you know, when when uh, candidates support vaping. Mm. Mm like Senator Johnson, for example. And there's even another one. I don't know if you saw, but there was a, a very uh, uh, celebrated uh, election uh, outcome just a few weeks ago here in the United States where mm. the top uh, political official in the state Senate of New Jersey had been there for decades. The, the, he was the Speaker of the House there, got ousted by a gentleman, pro-vaping guy, mm. who spent a grand total of $150 on his campaign. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So there's some snippets. I mean, I guess I don't know. Do you, do you sense there might be, if crafted properly, you know, an outreach to, to on vaping policy that could that could perhaps gather, you know, huge bushels of votes and overcome a lot of these rote, you know, flashcard, you know, scaremonger points coming from the other side in, in campaigns and elections? Yeah, look, uh when uh, Grover Norquist was here in Australia, we, we were chatting to him after a conference, Alex Wadak and I, and he said, he said when he thought when the number of vapors got to 20 million in the US, they would have a significant political clout to be able to influence um, election campaigns. And I think it does come down to a critical mass. Um, 
one of the um, well-known professors of economics in Australia, uh, Richard Holton, did a paper on on vaping, and he he said that the Australian government's taken the easy way out. They've they've felt it was there was more to be gained politically by not supporting vaping than uh, the, than the risk from actually going against the dominant narrative and and all the other uh, pro vape uh, anti vaping uh, organisations. So I think politics is the key thing, uh, the key thing here. And I think I think community support politicians are concerned. there'll be pressure to um, conform. Right, right, right. Well, we've got Jacob back now as well. Um, uh, you know, th speaking of the kind of the distorted storylines that get out there, we, we made an interesting discovery um, in our own research in, in, in recent days about a news service called Health Day. And um, what this outfit does is they take press releases from various public health organizations, they lightly re-edit them and then post them on their website as if they were, you know, original reporting content and then sell that content to various customers like U.S. News and World Report, for example, among many, many others like WebMD. And in doing so, you know, a lot of a lot of slanted, incomplete, erroneous, misguided info gets out there. And we we, we saw that the um, campaign for tobacco free kids had been using this method or that their press releases had been had been, you know, uh, washed through health day numerous, numerous times, many, many countless times over a long period of years. And that strikes me, I think, as part of what we're talking about, the way that the way that the prohibition forces kind of seize on, you know, these these distorted news cycles, put out press releases as if they're authoritative, and then they can just either, you know, put them through chop shops like Health Day or count on, you know, consumer reporters or incurious journalists at outlets like CBS This Morning and continue to propagate that stuff. So I guess, Jacob, my question is, have you, have you noticed that as well, that these, that these, that these sort of distorted storylines, whether it's Valley? Um, you know, or popcorn lung, for, for example, seem to take on this kind of, you know, in, intentionally, they're sort of, in, it's sort of intentionally misleading PR cycles. Well, I mean, what you're describing sounds especially misleading and unethical. Uh, but you do what you classically see is that somebody will do a study, somebody with an agenda, let's be frank, will do a study um, and they will write it up. Um, usually using fairly uh, careful scientific language in the in the publication itself. But then the university will do a press release that is not so careful, I think it's fair to say, that plays up the most sensational aspect of the study. Um, and then many science reporters, unfortunately, will read that press release and that's it. And they won't, they won't read the study itself, uh, especially uh, not all the way to the end where they get to the part about its limitations and so on. Um, so that's, that's a real problem. Um, that happens across the board, not just this in the area of you know, tobacco policy or drug policy. Um, that's the thing I see, I see more commonly. And how about from where you sit, Colin? What's, what, how, does the Australian press act in that way uh, with these kinds of news cycles or is it, or is it any, any more sober than we see in the U.S.? 
I think you might still be on mute there, Colin. Colin, I think your mute button might be oh, on. Oh, yes, yes, I'm back on, I'm back on now, yeah. Um, yeah, look, I think in Australia we, we have the same problem with alarmist and sensational media stories which focus on the negative views, news, um, and they often don't dig deeply into the story, so they, they'll often accept uncritically uh, reports or press releases uh, without reading or analysing uh, the research study. So... Um, uh, and, and there are often these single anecdote news stories like, like, like the erectile dysfunction one, which is just, you know, where they have um, a single story of a particular event that's occurred to a particular patient. And, you know, it does distort perceptions of risk uh, in, in, in readers. And we often don't get balanced coverage. Often these stories are reported, but there's no independent comment from someone else with expertise in the field. Um, so um, the the pro vaping store, the views of the story often aren't aren't, aren't considered, um, yep. and, and often they don't often they don't compare the risk to smoking. They will point to some some issue that's appeared, uh, some symptom or some some cell study, um, and and they won't compare to to, to, to put it in perspective. We, you know, you don't get a measure of absolute risk in, in terms of. The, the harm compared to the alternative, which most of these people would be using anyway, which is smoking. Well, you know, the, 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 there are so sorry, there are so many sort of errors within within the media, and and one of the other obvious ones is is association and causation, which are often totally uh, misrepresented. So yes, there's a lot of problems in the media. Well, it makes me think, you know, the, the, the reliance on these kinds of distortions and scare cycles that you see out of the advocacy groups, you know, makes me, you know, wish almost that there could be some, almost like public, uh, some kind of public debate, like the ones Jacob that, um, you know, Soho Forum does such a good job of um, in New York. But you know, a Lincoln Douglas style debate or Oxford style debate, let's say, in which we had an advocate you know, from, from, from the pro-vaping side and, and one of the leading advocates from the prohibitionist side to really, you know, thrash this out in a formalized setting, you know, to confront a lot of the ways that this is being discussed and what's accurate and what's not and, and have a responsible, you know, colloquy about it in a way that was rigorous. Um, I mean, again, maybe that, that may be another one of my, you know, wishing on a star ideas, but Jacob, does, do you think so, anything like that would even be remotely possible or are these groups just so ensconced in their own bubble that they would never even indulge something like that well i think rather than than having just like a, a single debate no matter how well viewed it is or attended it is i i think the main way to improve coverage is simply to make more journalists aware that there are two two sides at least <laughs> to this issue um and so the fact that the FDA acknowledges uh, that vaping products um, have harm reduction potential. They have repeatedly acknowledged that. It kind of makes, you would think it would make it impossible to ignore that aspect of the story. That is a crucial part of the story. It wouldn't make, you know, what the FDA is now doing wouldn't make any sense at all if they didn't acknowledge uh, uh, the harm reduction potential. Um, the fact that, you know, with the American Journal of Public Health, I think it's back in August, they published um, an article by uh, about 15 leading tobacco researchers talking about how, yes, 
that you know we should be uh, we should be worried about underage vaping but we also should be worried about all the smokers who are still smoking and if we uh pursue you know uh, fighting underage vaping to the exclusion of all else you're going to endanger the lives of smokers who otherwise could have quit um you know and these are very respectable people they cannot be dismissed as you know industry flax um so i you know i'd like to see more stuff like that where where people who have have been following this the this research for you know decades uh summarize what it, what they think is known um and then it's out there so that's now available for other people to look up when they're when they were trying to figure out what does the evidence actually show well you'll both be pleased to know um today's listenership is one of the largest we've ever had for twitter spaces so if either of you gentlemen were ever to be our champion in a public debate i can i can confidently forecast there'd be a pretty good pretty good audience for it um i, I must say jim though we, we've tried that in australia we've approached the leading anti-vaping organizations and they absolutely refuse to debate us and it's obvious why i mean you know clearly if you have a, a fair debate they'll lose they don't have the evidence on their side and it's very easy for them to get onto a show with a journalist and say oh but vaping uh there's no the evidence isn't effective it doesn't show it's effective and the journalist isn't in a position to challenge them. But if you have a one-on-one -on -one challenge with a, another expert who is familiar with the facts, of course they're, they're going to struggle with that. So we, they've refused to debate us in Australia for, for that reason, I think. And were you able to make and, any hay out of that? Were you able to you know, point out their refusal as evidence you know, that, that they lack the, the, uh, you know, the wherewithal? Well, we've often made that point on social media, but it's very hard to get mainstream coverage of it. And, and that's the, the Balfour article, that, um, the article that um, Jacob mentioned by Balfour and all the SRNT presidents. I mean, that's a typical example of, of biased coverage. Like the, the, how much mainstream media coverage was there of that outstanding paper, which presented a very balanced view and, and made a very good argument for vaping? Very little. It certainly wasn't covered in Australia. I'm not sure how much coverage there was in the US. But when really good news comes out like that by... Uh, you know, uh, experts who, who are beyond reproach, um, then even then it's not covered. So, you know, we, we really are struggling in the mainstream media. Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of soft, soft consensus and there's different ways the U.S. media describes that among themselves. In the old days, it used to be called the Gang of 500 who would sort of come to a conventional wisdom on different, you know, policy assumptions. And you can see that in the way I think the U.S. press covers vaping there's a there's mm. a general reluctance to step out of line on this sort of consensus thinking and it, you know that's mm. why a guy like tony docopil at abc who may very well know better is leery of doing it for fear that he's going to look bad in the eyes of his colleagues at other networks and you know mm. to the to the npr health correspondent or you know that he'll he'll catch static at the white house correspondence dinner i mean it's it's this kind of Groupthink that we've got to shatter. I mean, my, my hope is that, that there'd be one, you know, intrepid journalist, you know, Reason Magazine, you guys have been, you know, carrying the banner on stuff like this and your your bravery is not in doubt. But I, my, my hope is that some journalist at a, another leading publication would, would say, hey, you know, fellow travelers in my circle of thought, we got to, you know, we need to snap out of our stupor on this. Um, a sort of contrarian piece that maybe sobers up the whole group. It's certainly ripe for that. Um, how likely it is, I, it, it, I don't know. 
Well, there may be journalists who are willing to do that. We, we certainly in Australia, we've had pieces put to uh, mainstream publications and the journalists have said, yeah, that sounds really interesting. But then he gets back to us in a day or two and saying, look, the editor doesn't, doesn't believe in vaping and doesn't want right. to go there. Right. So right. It's, it's not that simple, unfortunately. Well, let me, look, let me there say are... a good... Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say I was just going to say a, a good word for our friend uh, Mark Gunther, who had a terrific piece mm. um, a while back in, in in philanthropy today. You know, taking on Bloomberg Philanthropies and all you know all the various problems with with their advocacy. And you know, what made that such an important piece was that it appeared in a publication like like Philanthropy Today, which which, which would normally mm. you know be leery of kicking shins among major donors like that. One would think. Um, and Gunther brought a, you know, a really rigorous prose pro journalism mm. to that story, which really made it stand out. And that that I think it's those kinds of pieces um, from writers with that kind of gravitas that would be have mm. the potential for to, to, to be game changers. I don't know, Jacob. I mean, again, I, I fear I may be over my skis on, on that. No, I mean, I, maybe to end on an optimistic note, it is true that the coverage, you may, you may not realize it, <laughs> the coverage has gotten better. I mean, in many respects, especially coverage from, you know, leading prestige publications like the New York Times. Initially, there are lots of stories like we have no idea whether this is less dangerous than smoking. Um, we really don't know. There was a lot of stuff like that. You rarely in in you know, uh, the leading leading publications, you rarely see that sort of thing anymore. Now, they may still underplay the potential benefits and they may still exaggerate the risks, especially when it comes to teenagers and so on. But um, in terms of just blatant, saying things that are blatantly untrue, you're less likely to see that nowadays, I think. Well, we are a little bit over our time, so I'd like to close by asking you um, each uh, how our listeners can follow your work and especially what you're working on next or see coming next. Give us a little forecast of your upcoming thinking. Mm, well, <laughs> I'm available on Twitter and Facebook um, and I have a website and I produce a blog. So they're very welcome to, to follow my work on that. I'm involved in a randomised controlled trial in Australia, um, a government funded trial, which is looking at the value of vaping versus nicotine replacement for smokers from lower socioeconomic groups. So we're hoping that will have some influence in Australia, at least it's Australian research. Um, but yeah, like I think, I think, I think the challenge for us all is to get the main messages out there into the mainstream media as, as much as we can to win public confidence and to put the pressure on the politicians. I think that's the most important thing we can do. And I think vapors have a huge role to play in um, spreading the word because I think that's what's going to change the political debate. Jacob, how can folks follow you and what are you up to next? Uh, Reason.com uh, is where you can find uh, my stuff and stuff by my colleagues. Um, you know, I write about drug policy in many other areas, and I try to make it clear that uh, the vaping is just one aspect of that. I mean, it's an aspect uh, both of, 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 you know, harm reduction, um, but also of, you know, the government trying to dictate choices to people, which we're not very fond of in reason. Um, and that especially with something like this, which is this um, huge innovation that is potentially very beneficial 
it should be enough that people want to buy these products and and think they can benefit from them. That should be enough. Unfortunately, it's not. So uh, you have the FDA trying to dictate which ones you can get and under what terms and so on. Um, and that's a shame because it really it does real harm to real people in the end. Well, in our view, you're both doing uh, intrepid and hugely important work. So you have um, our heartfelt thanks for that and um, and our, our fervent hope that you keep up the, the great effort. Uh, thanks, too, for uh, spending the time with us today. We'll put uh, audio and excerpts from our chat on our uh, social media feed over the next couple of days. And um, thank you both uh, tons for uh, for taking part. Really, really terrific insight. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you for asking me. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. To be continued, gentlemen. We'll talk soon, I'm sure.